Friends, our scripture reading for today comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to be with you. I, um, my name is Gary Haugen, and I was uh, very fortunate to have coffee with uh, Thomas yesterday. Of course, when you're going to be with a new church, I have no idea, like, what am I walking into here? And he, he did let me know the one thing I needed to know was that things needed to go well for the University of Texas. Uh, <laughs> So I, you know, things seem to be going swimmingly, and then uh, you decide to let TCU have 20 points in the fourth quarter, and uh, things started to get tense for me, but I think we're all just very happy this morning, so (laughs) nice to be with you. I wonder if you can remember, especially when you were really, really young, when somebody gave you the gift of responsibility, more than that, the dignity of responsibility. I remember this so clearly because I was eight years old and I was visiting my Uncle Chuck and Aunt Phyllis in Tacoma, Washington with my family. Now, Uncle Chuck is exactly as you're already picturing just from the name. Like, Uncle Chuck was this old school construction worker. He had the height and the girth and the mobility of a vending machine, basically. (laughs) But he was my favorite uncle because he was funny and he let me watch TV. And uh, so we were up very late one night, way past my eight-year-old bedtime, watching Gunsmoke. And Uncle Chuck asked me if I would be willing to go with him the next day to work. Well, of course, this was pretty much like Neil Armstrong asking if I would help him with the mission to the moon. Because this was serious, right? This was the big time. I clearly was needed at the construction site. We'd probably have to wake up before sunup and drink coffee. And indeed, the next morning, my little eight-year-old self did both of those things. And it was an epic, sweaty day. handed my Uncle Chuck these really heavy tools. I swept up these mountains of sawdust and trash. I loaded up the truck after the day was done, pretty much all by myself. (laughs) Then I clambered up to ride shotgun on the ride home. Couldn't really see over the dashboard, but I put my arm out the window, nevertheless, (laughs) like any good working man does on the ride home, right? Now that summer, I had arrived at Uncle Chuck's house about three foot, 10 inches, but I went home about seven feet tall because Uncle Chuck had given me the dignity of responsibility. He gave me grown up work to do, a sense of significance to my little being, the joy of actually making a difference. And this, of course, is the great joy that God, our Heavenly Father, invites us into as he bestows upon us 
his children the dignity of responsibility as he gives us work to do in the world. In fact, think for a moment about everything we know God wants done in the world. He wants the gospel to be known. He wants the sick to be healed. He wants the hungry to be fed. He wants families to be whole. He wants justice to be done. But we can also recognize two things about everything on that list. Number one, he could do all of these things by himself. But secondly, he has chosen instead to use people to get these things done. Now, you and I might argue with God that this is actually not the best plan for getting these things done. And there'd be a lot of evidence to show for that. But in the same way, the Uncle Chuck, my Uncle Chuck didn't, shoot, didn't choose the sharpest tool in the shed, right, when he decides to bring his eight-year-old nephew to, to the work site. But Uncle Chuck clearly has other purposes in mind. And likewise, God... He has deeper sovereign purposes at work as well as he chooses to get his work done in the world by giving us the dignity of responsibility. He, of course, maintains ultimate responsibility for the work the way Uncle Chuck maintained ultimate responsibility for what was happening on the work site. But we can't deny that God has decided in his sovereign will to place in our hands responsibility for accomplishing the things that he is passionate about. To share the good news he gives to us. To love the lonely he gives to us. To raise children he gives to us. To protect the vulnerable. To paint the masterpiece. To tell the truth. To plant the seed. To order the universe. You and I get to do these divine things. And occasionally we can see over history a singular generation that seems to be given stewardship over a unique moment. A first century church, for instance, that was a generation that turned the world upside down with a gospel of love. Or a 16th century church of Calvin and Luther and common sense who remade the Christian world with a reformation that opened new channels of God's grace or an 18th century fellowship of founding fathers who pioneered forms of democracy and rule of law that were very new, imperfect, but very new to the world. Or what they called the greatest generation, of which my Uncle Chuck was one, that fought and defeated the genocidal forces of Nazism and fascists. Or a civil rights generation that marched out of churches with songs of hope to defeat systems of legalized racism. Or a generous generation that more recently confronted the scourge of HIV AIDS, which you'll remember was killing thousands of people every day in our world. And they helped reverse the path of this global pandemic. What a great dignity for the people of God to be given a role to play in such epic struggles of divine consequence. And so this morning, if I may, I would like to encourage us just to pause for the moment that we are sitting in and to consider an utterly unique moment in history in which God seems to have placed us. 
Because whether we know it or not, Almighty God has ordained for us to be alive in a unique time in his ancient struggle against perhaps the most iconic evil in human history, and that is the struggle against slavery. Not very many people know this, I don't think, but there are actually more people in slavery today than in any other time in human history. There are more than 50 million people held as slaves in our world today. That's more than four times the number of people who were extracted from Africa in horrific transatlantic slave trade over 400 years. Right now, human slavery is a $150 billion business. Imagine, this is generating more annual profits than Apple, Samsung, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Intel combined. So slavery is not, it turns out, a relic of history. It's a larger reality than it has ever been. Because if our mental image of slavery is a black and white photo from the 19th century, we'll need to update it with color for the millions of 21st century slaves, for instance, who are working on agricultural facilities around the world. Or if this is the picture of slavery in our minds, it needs to be updated to reflect millions of slaves that are trapped by violence just in brick factories around the world. The horrors and degradations of slavery that we learned about as children continue on an even more vast scale today. And of course, children who in other eras found themselves born into slavery, today likewise find themselves inheriting the yoke of slavery by millions. As the old violence and humiliation of slavery is taking on 21st century form. Now, if these images of modern slavery are just shocking and almost surreal and perhaps kind of unbelievable, I can totally relate to that because I can remember the way I felt the first time I met a slave. She was about 10 years old and I met her in South Asia. Her name was Shama and she was sitting on the floor where she had to sit seven days a week sitting rolling cigarettes 12 to 14 hours a day. And then with my work with IJM, the first time I was involved in an undercover operation in Southeast Asia and walked into a back room of a brothel and was presented with more than a dozen of these children who were being sold to foreign pedophiles and sex tourists. Because I want to be clear that I'm not talking here now about a metaphorical slavery. We're talking about human beings who are actually owned by others and are forced to work by terror. These boys are beaten by their master if they don't comply. These men who we worked with had their hands cut off when they tried to run away from their traffickers. And there's a steel padlock on the cell where this girl is first forced to sleep. And these slaves are held in a brick factory just by absolute terror. The brutality of slavery is real in our era and the faces who impose that violence are just very real as well. Now this is a lot of darkness to absorb and sometimes I just can't, you know, take it all in. So it helps me when Jesus just focuses my attention on just one. Because I can't take responsibility maybe for all of these, but sometimes I can take responsibility for one. And several years ago, I met a, a boy named Godson. He had grown up in an impoverished village in Ghana in West Africa. And when he was a small boy, Godson just desperately wanted to go to school. 
And when he was sharing his story, I could relate to it because I was the youngest of six kids and my older siblings were all off to school and the school was right across the street from where we lived. And there would just be these endless days where I'm like pressed against the chain link fence, like excluded from being able to go to school. I just wanted to go to school, but I was too young. But for Godson, the, the, the problem was harder. He was just too poor. And that's why it felt like a miracle when a distant relative showed up at his, uh, at his home, talked to his mom and said, hey, I can get Godson into a school. You just got to send him with me to another uh, province. And this seemed, you know, just too good to be true, but the mom was running out of options. And so she let Godson go with this distant relative. But alas, like so many promises for the poor, it was too good to be true. And Godson found himself transported f far from the safety of his, his own community into another province and into the hands of a, a trafficking ring. And like thousands of other boys, he was sold into slavery on Lake Volta and was forced to work on a fishing boat. Lake Volta is the largest man-made lake in the world and it was created by flooding this massive forest. So what do the thousands of enslaved boys do? Well, they're thrown into the dark waters in order to untangle the nets that get caught up in all the trees that are underneath the water. It's terrifyingly dangerous and sometimes they just don't come back up. So at the age of seven, Godson was sold into this work and he worked six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. And in fact, he witnessed his best friend, Jonathan, go into those waters and never come back up. I think as I got close to Godson, slavery in the 21st century ceased to be an abstraction for me because it's this one little boy's daily life. But I also, over these years, have learned the most surprising fact about this particular moment in history that we live in. Because for the first time ever, forces are aligning to make it possible for this generation, for you and me, to see the end of slavery as a force in human affairs. Now, why is this possible now? Number one, for the first time in history, it is illegal everywhere in the world. Secondly, slavery has masked itself in just a few countries where the laws are not enforced. In fact, 70% of these 50 million slaves are in just 10 countries. And here's what we've learned. We've also figured out what ends slavery. If you simply combine great law enforcement with great services for survivors, slavery rates collapse. We've done nine projects over these last 15 years around the world and in every single jurisdiction around the world where you bring great law enforcement and great survivor services, slavery collapses by between 50 and 85% very quickly. In the most recent results from a state in South Asia that has a population of 72 million people, that's Texas and California combined as a population, they had a tremendously large concentration of slavery. And IJM, the organization International Justice Mission, we took on this project of addressing this with the authorities. Now, I want to be clear that this is violence just affecting common human beings in slavery. Men, women, and children who cannot make decisions about their lives because they're forced to work by violence. 
But after eight years of working with the authorities, the outside auditors just reported the impact this past summer. And they reported that slavery had been reduced by 82% over this eight year period of time. This means 380,000 people who were previously held as slaves are now free. 380,000 people. That's the number of people who were released by the Emancipation Proclamation from Alabama in 1865. It turns out that the slave owners are not brave people. And if they think they're going to get caught and go to jail, they just stop doing it. And I think this is the extraordinary opportunity that God is actually placing in our hands in this peculiar moment in history and in a very specific way. In Godson, I mean in Ghana, where Godson had suffered so much on Lake Volta, the government authorities and local church leaders have actually asked IJM to come in and carry out a program that will end for good, forever, this practice of slavery on the lake. And now we've been partnering here with Covenant Presbyterian to take on this struggle. In one of our earliest operations, we were able to rescue Godson off of the lake and to see him reunited with his family. And he actually did get to experience his dream of going to school. He's now pursuing some uh, mechanical engineering. But God had, Godson had to endure 10 years of slavery on the lake. And now he tells his story to thousands in his own country to rally them to this struggle and to this fight. In fact, Godson was just here in Texas a few months ago, and some from the church actually got to meet him as he shared his story. So let's just consider what the God of history has placed before you and me. He's placed us in an utterly unique moment in history when there are more people in slavery than ever, but also when it's possible to end slavery in our lifetime because he's given us the, the tools to do that. The problem is simple. There are places in the world where slaves don't have access to great law enforcement or to services that can restore them to dignity and strength, but they could because there are now proven ways to make that possible. So the question is, will this be the generation that finally makes this kind of freedom available to everybody? Is that actually possible? Could God be giving us the dignity of that responsibility? It's so encouraging to know it's been done before. I trust you're all familiar with the miracle of what happened 200 years ago in the struggle against slavery in that era. You know, if we were to travel back in the early 1800s, we'd find a world in which the largest, most prosperous economies in the world were operating on the basis of slavery. But within a single generation, the most surprising thing happened. The most prosperous slave economies in history were forced to stop it for moral reasons. How did that happen? Well, a passionate generation of Christ followers were invited by God into the dignity of responsibility and they launched the first mass movement of Christian abolition. This was a movement in which millions of everyday Christians took up the cause of ending slavery on a mass scale. You're familiar with the history when Christian leaders like William Wilberforce or Harriet Beecher Stowe or Frederick Douglass or William Lloyd Garrison or Sojourner Truth, they sounded the alarm. 
But what they did is they woke up this sleeping giant of the church. They woke up by the millions to call their authorities to account for the sin of slavery. God gave common, everyday, church-going Christians the dignity of responsibility. And by the millions, they took up their prophetic work. They rallied to anti-slavery gatherings and overflow crowds in tiny church halls or big revival meetings. And in the days before Facebook and Instagram, how did people actually get a picture of what slavery was about? Well, they circulated millions of copies of the picture of this single reality of what it looked like to be packed into a slave ship. And this changed people's view. They demanded to know where the sugar in their tea and the cotton in their dresses came from. And they addressed themselves to their elected authorities and demanded an end to slavery. Christian citizens by the millions gathered up their dollars and shillings and made sure the fight for freedom had a fighting chance against the moneyed interests of slavery. And over a generation, a single generation, they succeeded beyond all expectations. They outlawed slavery from the most prosperous slave empires in history. Totally amazing. The end of slavery seemed to have come and the church by the millions went back to sleep because slavery did not in fact end everywhere. As we now know, slavery evaded extinction by adaptation. It took on forms that the old laws did not address and it amassed in places where the laws were not enforced. And then human population exploded in the 20th century and we find ourselves where we are now with more people in slavery than ever, but also with the capacity to know what will end it. And so, in the arc of history, what does God do? Well, I think he stirs the prophetic passion of his people. He gives them the dignity of responsibility. He invites them to the grown-up work of sounding the alarm if our neighbors don't know this. He places in our hands the practical work of raising the awareness and raising the resources that will end up deciding whether the 21st century is a century in which the forces of slavery continue or whether it actually is swept into the dustbin of history for good. This is what seems to be at stake in the extraordinary drama that God is placing before you and me in this generation. And now we find ourselves here at Covenant Presbyterian where for years you have been providing a very faithful witness that there is a God of history who is alive and well and working through his people to provide a witness to his goodness, his compassion, and his justice. And in this moment in which there is such a challenge of slavery in the world, International Justice Mission is now the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world and can partner with churches like this to just make sure that children like those who are enslaved in places like Ghana don't have to know that reality. Because when I think of little Shama or I think of Godson on that lake or I think of those little kids in that brothel in Southeast Asia, I think, how in the world today are they supposed to find it believable that God is good? And then I remember, oh, that's what we get to do. We get to make that believable by showing that we care and by going to them with what they need to be free. So if you find this tugging on your heart at all with just a little just glimpse of hope and joy, 
I would just encourage you to not allow that spark of hope to end with a joyless defeat in the church parking lot. That great asphalt graveyard where the holy whisper of God's glorious hope is swallowed up in the drive-away noise and rush to the next busy but lesser thing. As Thomas was mentioning, over in the Fellowship and Education building, there's a table set up there where there's an opportunity for you to get material from IJM about what it is we're doing and the opportunity to partner with this church to just end the slavery that imperils children in Ghana, but also other missions partners, which there's all kinds of opportunities to take on the dignity of responsibility for something that is passionate in God's heart in which he invites us into the work. And as you consider all those various options, please just do remember this image of Uncle Chuck and him inviting his eight-year-old nephew to the site because remember, Uncle Chuck is not doing that because he's panicked about getting the work done. He's not inviting me because he doesn't have other options for providing labor at the work site. It was all love and joy for me, his little incompetent eight-year-old nephew. It was his pure delight to invite me into the adventure of discovering what I was capable of, of discovering the grown-up and weighty work that I could do with him. Likewise, our Heavenly Father has given you, I think, a glimpse of his weighty work in the world. And he's just asking, do you want to step out with him onto the worksite to taste a bit of the dust and the sweat and the struggle where he is today seeking to bring his love to those who are hurting? And just as my Uncle Chuck was part of what they called the greatest generation that survived the Depression, that defeated global fascism, and built so many institutions of peace and stability that we've been able to enjoy, God may be inviting you and me to be part of this justice generation who take responsibility for going to work with him in the world to finally end slavery so boys like Godson and others don't have to continue to wait for hope. Frederick Douglass said this 160 years ago at a sermon he preached on the 4th of July. He said, let the people of God array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding and the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. That day did not fully come for Frederick Douglass in his day, but by the grace of God for the first time in history, it may come in ours. Let's pray together. Kind Father, we're so grateful for your word and for your invitation to learn to do good, to seek justice, to rescue the oppressed, to defend the orphan and plead for the widow. Will you, by your Holy Spirit, allow some word of truth that may be from you today to enter our heart, take root, and actually bear fruit in the next good thing you would invite us to do with you? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um.